L'aspinage en la bouchon, si grec de pote bello, si rakish pakaletto, si le Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, in this episode, I'll be continuing to look at uh, James Edgy's film reviews and his film writings. The main source here is, of course, the Library of America volume of Edgy's writing. Specifically, what's collected in here is Edgy on Film, which is a relatively lengthy volume of uh, Edgy's film writing, published a little bit after he died, I think in the late 50s. Uh, the bulk of this is The Nation. Uh, reviews. I think it's all the Nation reviews, and I will be finishing up with the Nation reviews. He reviewed for the Nation from 1942 to 48, um, I guess. Yeah, 48 is when he quit. It's also when he quit. Time. There's also a lot of Time reviews, but they're not all included here. That's why there's so few of them. Relatively few. Um, it's not that he didn't write much for Time. I found this out. He he wrote actually maybe more than he did for the Nation, but they're only selected from here. Um, so. <coughs> Sorry. Um, we'll also look briefly at an article he wrote uh, called The Undirectable Director, which is about John Huston, his famous director, uh, or his most favorite, sorry, uh, Adji's favorite director. Um, so where we left off last time was with Monsignor Verdot. Uh, he gave a very lengthy review of Monsignor Verdot, uh, three parts. Uh, altogether, it's only like six pages because these are newspaper. These are like uh, magazine columns. But uh, yeah, so now we'll just finish up with the Nation. I'll just highlight a few films that he reviewed for the Nation. A few other articles he wrote that are interesting. He does take on McCarthyism a little bit in this section, so I think that's important to mention and highlight is as well as I said before, Adji's sort of. Not really a socialist, but he's socialist adjacent. Of course, he wrote Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which is kind of a lefty book in a lot of ways. I'll, I'll get into that uh, next time. Not a standard kind of takedown of capitalism in any sense, but certainly populist and certainly uh, a, a sympathetic look at uh, poor people in America, something that was you saw more of in the 30s, but it was still um, not, you know, different from the 20s when so much of the culture was emphasized in the middle class and the upper classes. Um, so yeah, let's, we'll look at, at his response to it, uh, to the McCarthy trials and the chaplain's beef with the Catholic Church that's mentioned here as well. So um, anyways, yeah, let's, let's see what we got. Now one, one film I didn't talk about, I think we should have been in the last episode, I suppose, was Henry V, Henry V. Um, he really liked, and he, he wrote uh, a lengthy, positive review. Uh, I'll come back to it. I think he's got a Time magazine article about Henry V that we'll take a closer look at. Um, why I only mention it now, because he kind of compares this film, Henry V, obviously a dramatization of, of a film version, a Hollywood version of the Shakespeare play, uh, is he also compares this to uh, the 1947 adaptation of Great Expectations writing great expectations does for dickens what henry v did for shakespeare that is indicate a sound method for translating him from print to film 
The method is not one of the most exciting that could be imagined, nor in its own terms is it used as excitingly as it could be imagined, but the film is almost never less than graceful, tasteful, and intelligent, and some of it is better than, than that. Personally, I don't know enough about Dickens to talk about or really to fully understand why it's hard to film Dickens. I mean, we've all seen Dickens novels on film. We've all seen like Christmas Carol at least. Um, but, you know, I haven't read all of Dickens' works. I, I am stuck with American writers because that's kind of my little personal cul-de-sac, which I, which I sort of acknowledge. But, um, and I'm not a big Shakespeare fan, so. But nevertheless, I kind of looked at this essay, um, this review of Great Expectations, which is what this column is, with some interest um, because it, it kind of helps me think through what Adji valued in, in film. Now, he's certainly not a believer in like the note-for-note note remake or that somehow the best way to translate a film or a, a novel to film is just to do exactly what's done. He realizes that there's different mediums and, you know, people always complain about translations, about adaptations uh, these days, especially of beloved books. But, you know, these, these adaptations have to be made. But I, I think it's like how you do it with what values and, and what kind of story you're actually trying to tell. Uh, he writes, for instance, uh, it looks as if director David Lean and his associates have understood Dickens' novels as a work of literature and as literary but good moving picture and also with the help of Freud and perhaps to some extent of Marx and have had the wisdom not only to get guidance and leverage from those kinds of knowledge but also never to urge them onto the screen or the audience. Whether or not they went about it in this way, the picture has a good deal of these tones and the extra resonance of dreams, legends, or fairy tales. I thought it very provocative, for instance, as a symbolized intuitive image of 19th century England with the century, Pip and Estella, moving as if hypnotized by the vengeful gratitude and deviousness of great ancestral forces. End quote. So I think what I'm trying to say is it's, it's able to legitimately build off this, these texts, but do so... Uh, in ways that that add something right and add something that film can can distinctly uniquely provide to the story but at the same time he doesn't seem to like the political you know beating over the head uh we'll see that certainly in let us now praise famous men where that could have been a story just about the horrors of poverty and of capitalism and 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 what the american system has done to the poor white farmer in the south and all that and he could have made it up a political story but he doesn't he makes it a, a very human story and uh, a, a literal piece of literature right so he knew he was not writing a he knew he wasn't writing like a policy book he wasn't writing marxist agiprop he was trying to tell the story of these people through their own words through his own impression of them and all that we'll get to this when we you know we'll have like four episodes on let us now praise famous men i suppose but in any case, I think it's the same kind of problem of translation and and this and and being true to your your source material while also, you know, going beyond what's there, adding something to it, right? Because at the same time, let's now praise famous men. Just a, isn't just a it's not just an oral history, right? It's it's also edgy adding something to it, right? So, anyways, that was that was kind of a interesting little review of of. Of great expectations, a version of that I've not seen, to be honest. Um, another interesting one, it, August 1947, he reviewed it is Crossfire, which apparently is like a noir film, kind of a, a 
a film of like a like a crime movie or something like that. I haven't seen it. I, I checked out the poster of it and looked it up online. And you know, there's well, you don't see this so much on the like the Wikipedia entry, but Agi focuses on this as an anti anti-Semitism film. And Agi's a bit disappointed that it has to be so conspicuously or so overtly like an anti anti-Semitist work. He writes, for instance, um, in a way, it's embarrassing to see a movie come right out against anti-Semitism as it would be to see a movie come right out against torturing children. Few things pay better in prestige and hard cash granted you present in an entertaining way than safe fearlessness. This film is not entirely fearless, fearless even within its relatively safe terms. End quote. Now, this, I think we must agree uh, that this is still a problem in Hollywood and in popular media is you push those buttons once it's safe to do it. And these mass market mediums tend not to push the buttons when it's not safe to do it, right? Like, was it a couple years ago or just last year? Green Book won a bunch of Academy Awards, right? Well, I guess it's an okay movie, whatever. But it's hardly like, like risk-taking politically to talk about racism, to talk about homophobia. Um, and then you still have a lot of the old, like legacies of old films about race with like, like The White Savior. And the movie was criticized for that stuff, as I recall, right? But even now, Hollywood is still, tries to have it both ways, tries to be a mass market thing, tries to convey its, tries to sell as many tickets. And to do that, you don't want to offend the prejudices and sentiments of the common people uh, who are going to watch the film. But you also want to be woke, right? That's what I'm trying to get about here is like how to be woke, but safe. And that's what he calls about here, this fearless or the safe fearlessness, right? You can say, oh, look how cutting edge we are. Look how bold we are. We're making a film about anti-Semitism at a time when, you know, anti-Semitism was, was more or less discredited as more was known about the Holocaust, as more was known about the Nazi war crimes and, and attitudes were beginning to change about um, Jews very quickly as a consequence of the war. He adds to this, quote, they have the sardonic courage to preach the main persuaders to a southern boy, taking painful, embarrassing care never to mention Negroes, but the lack of courage to make that omission inescapably clear to the audience, end quote. What a great summation of the problem, right? Now, obviously now anti-racist films are common because anti-racism isn't a marginal position, but it was in the 40s. And to extend an argument against anti-Semitism to one against Jim Crow would have not been as profitable for Hollywood. Right. So this is a very, kind of an important review that gets to some of, of Adji's moral sentiments about film. He, he does want to kind of have a, have a truth in film. That, that's why he's so for the realism. He, he likes the no-name actors. He's, um, he likes, in fact, a lot of the films he liked most in this collection are newsreel movies, just documentaries. So I, I think this is an important thing to focus on. And I was really, uh, I read this part really carefully and, and thought a lot about it because I think it's something that Hollywood still sort of lives with, you know, where they're woke to an extent, right? And, and there's a limit to how far they go, at least in their, their mainstream films, right? Like now, of course, we have, they're adding all these women superheroes to the superhero film canon. And a lot of these female superheroes, of course, had been there in the comics for decades, 
right? And then it's not like feminism is is a controversial issue in the in, you know in the way it was maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. All right, enough on that, enough on that. I hope we can agree. If you don't, let me know um, what you think about it, but I think it's a still relevant critique of Hollywood. Now, he, he kind of talks about his values about film directly in an October 1947 review. I think it's the Italian film Shushine. Yeah, Shushine. Um, and he writes this. The elementary beginning of true reason, that is a reason which involves not merely the forebrain, but the entire being resides, I should think is the ability to recognize oneself and others primarily as human beings and to recognize their ultimate absoluteness of responsibility of each human being. I can think briefly, I can most briefly suggest what I mean by genuine recognition of human beings as such by recommending that you see the Italian movie Shushine and that you compare it to the most recent, in the, or you compare it in this respect to most other movies you care to name. So uh, this is just a, a moral statement, of course, that it's really how we present ourselves to each other. That's our true moral uh, character and this ultimate responsibility, solidarity, whatever term you want to use, being our, the, the most human, the greatest moral virtue. Right. And then, of course, he wants films that do that, that are capable of doing that. Right. And that's, again, the problem with the big name actor. How do you have a humanistic film that, that has a quality of value of all people? Right. When your hero may be conveying such values in the screen through some kind of conflict or drama or struggle is paid, you know, 100 times what the other actors are paid. Right? Um, this was his complaint with I think it was Sahara. Right. Which was about uh, U.S. troops in North Africa. Uh, the argument was, you know, this whole unit defeated the Nazis, but Humphrey Bogart got all the money uh, for the for the role. Um, Okay, so jumping ahead, I want to talk about this essay he included. This wasn't a movie review. It wasn't a review of any particular film. It was a column. This was his column. He did what he want with it, what wanted with it within, I guess, what the editors allowed. But this comes out on December 27, 1947. And this is his statement essentially on Congress and Hollywood, right? Of course, the witch hunts, the McCarthyite uh, hunts trying to dig out communists in the State Department and government and eventually this of course spread to other places like Hollywood um, And then he also talks about the quote the Catholic Holy war against Chaplin now this part of it. I don't know as much about and frankly he doesn't say a whole lot about Chaplin he focuses on the style fear of Stalinists in, in Hollywood um, But I'm not surprised that there was you know a kind of a separate witch hunt against um Chaplin for any variety of reasons. Now, Chaplin, of course, was a, was a socialist. Um, and, and he had his own drama with Hollywood um, at the time. So anyways, what does he say about this? What does he say? Well, he talks about democracy. And that maybe this is kind of bougie democracy. I'm sure if I posted this kind of stuff about democracy now on Twitter, I'd be accused of being like a Western... Uh, you know, an agent of the CIA or something for promoting these values. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of actually down on, on, on Twitter these days, just to give you a little aside. You know, I'm a, I'm a believer that it can be both possible that people around the world can start to take a stand towards this authoritarian turn in world politics. I, I think it's hard not to see this turn towards authoritarianism, whether it's China, Russia, the United States, in, in many other countries. It, it's, it's not all one way. Some countries are becoming more democratic, but I think we are capable of measuring this in a fairly objective way. 
um, with some consideration given to local values and, and, and political situation or whatever. But it seems the trend is not good, right? And the fact that people are standing up against that, whether it's in Hong Kong or Belarus or you see um, greater solidarity around Taiwan, that can be authentic and real at the same time. And, and what those people are fighting for may be seen to be kind of bougie, Western yeah, kind of liberal values, right? Which I don't disagree with. I mean, I'm a socialist, but I think a good foundation for socialism is is democracy in as many areas of life as possible, in, uh, in uh, basic respect for each other, human rights. I, I think these are, you know, a good foundation for socialism. Um, better, actually, than capitalism. I mean, capitalism thrives in authoritarian states, actually, right? Now, my point is that people can stand up against authoritarianism for whatever local reasons they might do so. And also, right, that may also be in the interest of the United States empire. It is in the U.S. interest that Taiwan is not a part of China, right? It's also true that Taiwan should not be part of China um, for a, a variety of reasons and that there, there should be a stand taken on that. Um, or, you know, defending democracy in, in Hong Kong, right? There's good reasons for doing that, regardless of the fact that the U U.S. empire may have interests in seeing Beijing's control over Hong Kong weekend, or same thing with Russia in Belarus. I think they both can exist, but um, I've been finding, you know, some voices on Twitter that they don't quite see it that way. I see kind of any kind of movement, any of these colored revolutions are almost by definition, almost in inevitably CIA led operations. And um, so, you know, but I still think we can talk about democracy uh, on, in a fairly universalist way. Um, and, and I think Agi kind of has, I think, a fairly uh, a right uh, concept of democracy here. Of course, he's doing this in the context of criticizing the U.S. government's assaults on U.S. Uh, on, demo uh, on democracy and, and free speech in Hollywood. He writes, I believe that a democracy which cannot contain all its enemies of whatever kind or virulence is finished as a democracy. I believe that a vigorous and genuine enough democracy could do so. But I see no reason to believe that this democracy is vigorous or genuine enough by a good deal or to hope that it can be so nor am I thoroughly convinced that such a democracy can ever exist except in the most generous and sanguine imaginations. It seems to me that the mere conception of a vigorous and genuine democracy, to say nothing of embarrassing about its successful practice, depends on capacity for faith in human beings so strong that on its basis one can dare to assume that goodness and intelligence will generally prevail over stupidity and evil. So I more or less agree with him with the definition, vigorous, genuine, whatever that actually means in practice. What I don't, what I, I don't disagree. I don't agree with his pessimism, though. I think it is possible to make concrete progress. I think movements can be a part of that. I think uh, institutions, even to a degree, can play a part in that. Now, hopefully, those institutions are as democratic, as popular, as uh, distributed in society as much as possible. But um, you know, he's kind of writing this at a point where he's kind of very skeptical about the future of American democracy at a time when Hollywood is being. Um, under under some kind of attack. Now, at the same time, he's not like 
he he realizes the danger, I, I guess, of what you call Stalinism, right? Of authoritarian um, socialism. Quote, the Stalinists are by no means the only enemies of this reverence for single people and the possibility of mutual, tr mutual trust, even among opponents. And in that respect, non-revolutionists of every kind and class have already depraved themselves, this nation and democratic civilization beneath any likely prospect of cure. But among all these enemies, the Stalinists are as ruthless as the worst of the other, are moved by the energy of idealism of a kind rather than their naive self-cannibalistic self-interest. More elaborately than any other, they have developed a science of contempt for present humanity, end quote. Uh, now, again, I don't really agree with him here, but I, you know, where I, I kind of share his values here is he is making a defense of, of, of freedom of expression, right? Which I think is a more solid foundation for socialism than, than the alternatives. And he says, he says sort of as much. He says, the real conflict is not between Stalinists and the nominal democracies. It is between those who honor existence and so necessarily morality and those who honor either only in the hypothetical future, if at all. All right. Um, that the fight has to be now. The fight, it's not about what's going to be the future. What you can imagine a thousand years from now if, if, if my system survives. Right. I think that is a, a, a fault of actual existing socialisms in China, in the Soviet Union, you know, when it was, when it existed, was this kind of projection of the future, some kind of, I don't want to say utopia, because I don't think they were utopian, but um, like saying the immediate needs necessitate certain trumping of, of certain essential uh, values of, about humanity and equality and, 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 or whatever. All right, I'm spending too much time on this issue. It's, um, it's enough. I've said enough about this. Now, moving on, there's one really interesting film that I can't find. I can't find it like on YouTube. I can't, can't even find a Wikipedia entry for it, uh, although I did find some writing about it on, on the Internet somewhere. This, was, uh, this review was published in March 1948. Uh, Ferenbeck. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. But this is really interesting, and, and it's, it's kind of an amateur work almost. He writes, it was made on a farm in southern France by Georges uh, Roquier, who was born and raised in the neighborhood, left home and became a linotyper and ultimately got into movie making because he couldn't keep away from it. I mean, the classical, like, amateur, right? Um, and he really loves this film, which, again, it's just, it's just like a year in the life of, of farmers in, in France. Quote, Roquier's idea is simply to make a record of the work and living of a single family farm and of the farm itself in the surrounding countryside through one year. I can't imagine a better subject or one that is, as a rule, more degenerately perceived and presented. In a sense, all that can be said among his treatment is that it is right. That means, among other things, the following. And then he lists his various praises for the film. Now, what does he mean here by saying, when other, basically saying when other people do it, it gets degraded, right? And it's like when Hollywood gets a hold of this subject, it'll be melodramatic. It'll be, uh, it'll be maybe some lukewarm politics thrown in right now you'd throw in some kind of oscar bait you know acting performance or something right uh so you just going beyond the realism for drama's purposes right and that doesn't seem that that's what this guy wanted to do this guy even though it's a film it's not a documentary it's a it's a fiction film it is as, tr as much as possible trying to be a realistic portray portrayal of just life on this 
this farm in such that there doesn't even seem to be that much of a plot to the story. Um, quote, his use of analogy and metaphor is Homeric in simplicity and force, the terrifying blooming of a sped flower and an image of childbirth, the sound of an ax in the falling tree as the camera watches a man's pulse die. He used the stop motion as I have always wanted to use it very plainly to show the motions of darkness and light and shadow and with complete freedom and daring and his orgiastic sequence on spring. So looks good. Looks like something that might be worth trying to check out. But as far so far, I haven't been able to find out a copy of that. It's not really my time of movie, though, but it seems I, I, I want to like I'm interested enough by this description that, I, that it's it sounds like I want to check it out. It sounds like it's worth checking out. All right, we're getting towards the end here of uh, his reviews of uh, For the Nation. In fact, the last one we have here, I think this is his last entry, September 4, 1948, is, uh, is a biography and an obituary for, for D.W. Griffith, right? And of course, in film, you know, you have to take on, you have to consider, I mean, you have to deal with Griffith in some way. Um, now, Adji was a fan of The Birth of the Nation. He does take on The Lost Cause. I mean, now this movie can be praised for its filmmaking and techniques and, and what Griffith did and also criticized for the portrayal of black people and its embrace of this lost cause ideology, right? And, and I'll tell you, in 48, there was no excuse for accepting lost cause ideology on Reconstruction. There just wasn't. Um, I mean, I even learned when I was in grade school, you know, in the 80s, about Reconstruction being kind of a corrupt time. That, that's a remnant of uh, the Reconstruction governments, the Republican governments in the South after the Civil War. It was being taught as corrupt, a corrupt time. You know, and we focused, my textbook at the time focused on the scandals of the Grant administration and, and all that. So that's a remnant of lost cause ideology. But there's no excuse for it. Uh, du Bois in, I think, 36, 38, sometime like that, wrote Black Reconstruction in America, which should put an end to lost cause thinking. It didn't, but it's all you need to read. I actually reviewed part of this in this podcast earlier um, when I looked at Du Bois's writing. But something I just learned, um, actually, um, by Deborah Gray White's book uh, about black women's self-organization is that back in the 20s in the Harlem Renaissance, black writers writing in the Journal of Negro History were deconstructing lost cause ideology, right? So, and then at the time, of course, people were criticizing um, Griffith at the time. Black filmmakers, black audiences were criticizing Griffith at the time for how black people were being portrayed. So Adji's defense of Griffith, I think, goes a little too far, farther than it needs to. Um, but nevertheless, it's part of this essay. I'll just read what he says. Uh, it's all in, a, in brackets, the whole, the whole paragraph in brackets. Today, the birth of the nation is boycotted or shown piecemeal. Too many more or less well-meaning people still accuse Griffith of, of having made it an anti-Negro movie. At best, this is nonsense. At worst, this is vicious nonsense. Even if, there were, even if it were an anti-Negro movie, a work of such quality should be shown and shown whole. But the accusation is unjust. Now, I actually agree with that, that part of it. You know, should be shown whole for what it is, a historical document. But uh, moving on to his quote here. Griffith went to almost preposterous lengths to be fair to the Negroes as he understood them. And that's the problem. 
has he understood them. Uh, and he understood them as a good type of Southerner, as a good Southerner does, or he understands them as a good type of Southerner does. I don't entirely agree with him, nor can I be sure that the film wouldn't cause trouble or misunderstanding, especially as advertised and exacerbated by contemporary abolitionists. Weird language there. But Griffith's absolute desire to be fair and under understandable is written all over the picture. So as degrees of understanding, honesty, and compassion far beyond the capacity of his accusers. So, of course, are the salient facts of the so-called Reconstruction years. So, Adji, he's embracing lost cause arguments about Reconstruction uncritically. He calls, like, civil rights activists in the 40s contemporary abolitionists, which I don't know why. I mean, are abolitionists bad? I mean, there are those who kind of saw abolitionists as kind of radicals at the time. I, I don't know. Um, was Griffith being fair to Negroes? Sure, if you had this qualifier as Edgy does, as he understood them. I mean, any racist is fair as far as they understand them. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people who know better and still maintain racist views. The problem is, as you understand it, I mean, this is the problem with Lovecraft, as it seems to me. And there's been a lot of drama about Lovecraft these days on Twitter, too. Is, yes, Lovecraft was of his time and he was blinded by prejudice, right? But he allowed himself to be blinded by prejudice. It's not as if other arguments weren't available for him to consume, right? And you can point out, yeah, some of his friends sent him letters and he just, you know, he read them and maybe he changed his view slightly. Sure, that's fine. But he was a smart guy, fairly well read. And he did not do much to, to educate himself on the African-American experience. And Griffith, you know, and maybe that's not the director's role. I don't know, but he could have he could have done better based on the knowledge that was before him, I think. So, but where I agree with Adji here, it is we should I guess we shouldn't cancel Griffith. I, I guess I agree with that, um, and that his his film should be shown and and talked about and discussed. Um, but anyways. If you want to read it, we have his, basically, it's a, it's a long obituary for, for Griffith. And it's a little of a sadness over how he kind of never fully recovered from some of the criticisms of Birth of the Nation. Um, but he never really stopped being such a brilliant artist, I guess, is, is Adji's overall argument. Um, and he also sees Griffith as kind of a, a normal, just just. A, like, not a brilliant, not a genius, right? Uh, my veneration for Griffith's achievements is all the deeper when I realize what handicaps he worked against, how limited a man he was. He had no remarkable power of intellect or delicateness of soul, no subtlety, little restraint, little if any taste, whether to help his work or harm it. Lord knows and be thanked, no cleverness, no fundamental capacity once he had achieved his first astonishing development for change or growth, uh, end quote. So he is kind of an, an everyman director almost all right so that that's only us in the last three episodes i guess this is the fourth i've only looked at a handful of the nation book re movie reviews and you can read them uh they're all here there it's in a book called edgy on film um but we don't have time to get into all of them and it'd be really repetitive to do that because um i think my goal here was really to dissect digest these and, and see what some of his main values are.
Now, next in this collection, uh, we have uh, an essay called The Undirectable Director, who is uh, John, John Huston. And John Huston was his favorite um, director. So what did this guy direct? Well, he directed The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, what else? Um, the African Queen, uh, Red Badge of Courage. Uh, these are all coming later. Um, in fact, most of these came out after he died. Um, Wise Blood, 1978, was John Huston. I saw that movie. The Man Who Would Be King. Um, what else do we have here? Let's... Key Largo. I mean, the focus here of this essay is on Asphalt Jungle. The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, because these would have been the biggest movies that Houston did when Angie was, was still alive. Um, but some good stuff here. Um, and um, what does he like about him? Well, I think he says this. Uh, Houston has done more to extend, invigorate, and purify the essential idiom of American movies, the true visual telling of stories, than anyone since the prime of D.W. Griffith. To date, however, his work as a whole is not on the level with the finest and most deeply imaginative work that has been done in movies. And then he name drops Doshenko, Eisenstein, Chaplin, Griffith, and others. For an artist of such conscious and caliber, his range is surprisingly narrow. In general, he is literally of emotion. Um, with only one exception, his movies that centered on men under pressure and have usually involved violence and occasionally verge in a kind of romanticism about danger. So... It's interesting that this essay is about a, still a director when he's youthful, right? He would still have like 30 years of work after Adji wrote this. And in, in fact, after Adji died. And he seems to be saying that what Houston does is, well, a lot of Hollywood directors kind of are just, everything's sort of pre-digested. Uh, you're just reenacting things that are on the script or are just cliches. Uh, in in the industry, but Houston's kind of pulling all these things together to make something that's really compelling and striking, um, and and memorable and vital. Um, it's it's kind of actually hard to describe here, and I'd have to see more of Houston's films to to maybe fully appreciate what he's saying. But um, but there's just something about his approach and method that that Edgy found is something that's that's really groundbreaking. In, in film and I think that's probably true I think we have our own directors now who maybe carry on this this spirit I guess um, I was kind of looking at his Wikipedia he has an interesting personal life a lot of wives a lot of affairs in his personal life but and a lot of films a whole lot of films in his in his career What do we got here? He was the voice of Gandalf in the animated film. The narrator in the Black Cauldron of 1985. So he kind of got in some acting too. All right. Anyways, I, I preferred the golden age of comedy of the two essays by Adji that we've read. I found that one a little bit more with a stronger thesis. This is a little bit uh, gushy and... And I, I think it's like maybe because I'm not a film person, it's hard for me to maybe tell you what makes a good film in kind of a visual sense. And Adji's kind of an amateur too, but there was still, um, you know, it's all, it's all about the experience and how things get put together, right? 
that's a lot, that's really what directors do is they, they put these different pieces together uh, the photography and the, the visuals and the script into something and it's really an art it's not just a science that you can't say do these five things and you have a good movie at least i don't think you can um, okay so now then we have the time um, articles and uh, for about the same length of time that Edgy wrote for The Nation, he wrote for Time. Um, and the, the editor of Edgy on Film says, out of this massive amount of material, it's necessary to select. Um, so, so I think they decided to choose reviews of films that weren't reviewed in The Nation because that was included. So most of these are films that aren't in The Nation reviews. Um, but he says this, the editor his ability to find something admirable or amusing in even the worst kinds of movies. The ability to say what he wanted it to say within a fairly tight given form is what's impressive about the time um, reviews. Because these are even shorter than the nation ones. These tend to be two, three paragraphs, um, less than a thousand words. So uh, I won't say too much about them because the next episode I'll focus on, on that and some of the other writings we have here. But um, let's see. I mean, it's the same kind of stuff. It's not like we're getting a new... It's not like Adji was schizophrenic and he wrote one way for the nation and one way for the time. It's just a slightly different format. He didn't have quite the time to meditate. It wasn't quite as bloggish as I think the nation reviews are. The time reviews are much more straight-up film reviews. Um, while in the nation magazine, he often had side conversations about film industry or he would just do like a rundown. I, like I saw these 10 movies, you know, short paragraphs about each. You know, he just was freer there than he was for, for time. But there's just one I want to talk about because I didn't talk about it when I came across it in the Nation Reviews. And that is his, it's, it's contrary to what he just said, this was a more lengthy review of Henry V, where time gave him, it looks like 2,000 words or so to review um, Henry V, 1946. Um, and he thinks this is one of the great movies of the age, um, certainly the, one of the best movies of the year. Now, obviously, Henry V is the story of the Battle of Agincourt from, uh, from the perspective of, of, of King Henry V, the young um, king who had to prove himself um, in the battlefield during the you know, this pivotal moment of the Hundred Years' War. And I think he kind of appreciates it in the context of having watched a whole lot of war films um, that, ver that, that kind of were ranged from really great to kind of trashy Hollywood crap to, to kind of propaganda pieces, did I already say that, to newsreel footage documentaries, foreign films. He saw, he'd been watching a lot of uh, war films throughout the 1940s. And of course, Henry V, also a war film, and the play was a war film. And I think that context is, is kind of important uh, for the making of it. Um, quote, and here poem and film link the great past to the great present. It's unlike that anything on the subject has been written to excel Shakespeare's short study in Henry V of men stranded on the verge of death and disaster. The man who made this movie made it midway in England's most terrible war within the shadow of Dunkirk. In appearance and in most of what they saw, the three soldiers with whom Henry talks on the eve of Agincourt might just as well be soldiers of World War II. No film of that war has yet said what they have said so honestly and so well. Here again, Olivier helped out Shakespeare. 
Shakespeare gave to the cynical soldier in the great speech, but if the cause is not good, etc. Olivier puts it in the mouth of a slow-minded country boy. The boy's complete lack of cynicism, his youth, his eyes bright with sleepless danger and peasant patience of his delivery, and his Devon repetition of the told world of die and doi, lift his wonderful expression of common humanity, caught in a human war level with the greatness of the king. Great stuff. Again, kind of urges me to, inspires me to go check out uh, Olivier's Henry V. Uh, another film I haven't seen. Yeah, I think these reviews overall, they make me feel really uneducated on, on films from the mid-century. So, something I should try to rectify, I suppose. Um, next episode, that's going to be it for now. Next episode, I'll finish up the film writings with some more time reviews and then uncollected film writings, which, frankly, are things the Library of America editors included that weren't in Adji on film. So mostly it's their Time magazine reviews that weren't included in the original anthology, but they're added here. Um, then we'll look at The Night of the Hunter, his screenplay, and I'll watch, I'll watch that film just to kind of compare it. And then we got a few other, one more episode for just jur random journalism that's included here. So three more episodes on this volume of Adji's writing, um, but great stuff. But only one more focusing specifically on film, unless we include his screenplay, which I guess is film writing of a sort. Um, we'll, we'll see if he does what he says should be done in, in film in his own work. So, yeah, that's it for now. Let me know what you think about any of this stuff I've been talking about. Sorry for going off the rails a little bit before. Or before. I've just been having a, a bad time lately since the Hugos, since um, the Belarus protests, since uh, just some recent global affairs on Twitter. Hasn't kind of got me a little grumpy. Um, but anyways, let me, let me know what you think about anything I've said or thought. It's all... Um, all open for conversation. Um, yeah, I'll see you next time with uh, some more of these these edgy film reviews. We can put an end to this um, this topic. See you then. Thanks for listening. J'ai notre seule mine, j'ai notre seule cantine. Je le sais trop vite, je le tasse à Villatoire.